Pia Husfeldt leads circular innovation and transformation at Inca Group, which includes designing future circular business models for IKEA. Her work as the global business leader at IKEA is focused on human-centered design and innovation, exploring and testing ideas iteratively to quickly learn and adapt practices. In this interview, you will hear how Pia leads her teams through the unknown. This leadership style requires agile methodology, including sprints, self-managing teams, and high adaptability, which are all themes we'll get into in this interview. So it's it's about, for me, it's about creating a environment, that's at least what I'm doing, in an environment where you feel, as, as we also want to, that it's also okay to fail, and we also celebrate failures sometimes. As you will hear, Pia has had a rich and non-linear path, which is incredibly inspiring. Her first job was as a PA in the fishing industry, where she learned the foundations of business thanks to her CEO mentor. Then she moved into telemarketing in banking, where she took a creative and innovative approach to marketing. Pia and I talk about how she never really had a formal career plan, but is able to retrospectively connect the dots for how these roles prepared her to be the executive she is today. A theme that really stood out to me was how she leads her teams at IKEA by creating thoughtful structure in order to channel their creativity. In her team, they engage in short, three-week sprint cycles where the individuals decide what projects they're going to take on. This works for them because of how aligned they are. So we review every third week, we also have a retro. So we go back, so what did we learn this three week? What could we have done better? What should we keep? What should we improve? What should we kill? Pia also discusses some of her best practices for new and creative ways of working together and connecting throughout the pandemic, such as walking meetings and even some remote scavenger hunts. This team definitely knows how to make work fun. We wrap up our conversation talking about how she feels the Scandinavian DNA cues them up for success. Oh, and also her vision for a glorious future. Her enthusiasm is definitely infectious. I think you're really going to enjoy this one. Pia Husfeldt. I am really, really happy to have you here on the Bet on Yourself podcast today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I am so curious about your career journey because I think you have some really unique, unexpected things in your background that I'm looking forward to digging into a bit. So I wonder if we, as we start our conversation, can you take us back to the very beginning and maybe tell us about your early education and what you did as your very, very first job? Where did you get started in your professional development? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let's let's start with my first real job. I had a lot of jobs um, when studying and all that, but the real job is actually uh, something that has meant something for my total career. I think so. Maybe that could be interesting to share. Um, I decided not to go to the university, so I left after college um, and took a degree with math and phys- physics and uh, chemistry. Um, Strange enough, I have no uh, intent of doing anything about that today. But at that time, that was my, uh, yeah, my favorite and where I was super good. But then uh, I, I was in doubt and I think many young people are. And I think it's super hard to make decisions when you are at that age because the world is out there. You can do anything. So so I, I was like, okay, let me get a job then. And, and maybe that can <laughs> pave the way. And I have been in a work, in a working since so that was, and then I took uh, more education in the evening, but I became a working woman, you can say, uh, very early. But my first job, very strange uh, company, and I don't even know if it makes sense now when I say it. it was a membership uh, community for the fishing industry in Denmark. Um, and uh, I had a CEO there that was super trust giving trust to to everyone at least i felt he gave me a lot of trust so he took me to a lot of things that a new assistant 20 year old would never have uh, joined so I, I joined that and i learned so much from him but what i learned from him was that trust myself and he trusted me and he gave me a lot of responsibility and i got double way uh, of my salary without within six months like uh, double of like my colleagues at the same level and everything so he was really like supporting young people and uh, giving trust and i and then if you apparently pick up and also dare yourself to to trust yourself and take it up i think um, that's a good start for everyone so so he that's actually a very good start for me in the working life so maybe that's why i more or less stayed there 
<laughs> I didn't go back to university or something. Fascinating that you did math and chemistry, ended up in fishing. <laughs> <laughs> Not a path, but I love that you identified that probably the most important element in that first job was one, working for a leader who saw your potential and invested in you, not only but through experiences and getting you out in those environments and inviting you to have a seat at that table. And as you identified, equally important was that you allowed yourself the permission to do some things you didn't know how to do and to participate fully in. How long were you at that first role um, and, and what led you to your next opportunity? What led me to the next? I, I mean, I was, it, it was not from a content point of view, I wanted something more fun. So I had this aspiration like anyone else, I think, at least in my, my with my friends, like advertising or something more fun was, was the next and being creative and so on. So, so I was super sharp that that is what I wanted, but it, I ended up in a, in a phase before that. And, and it's always when you look back, also when you get older and you have a lot of <laughs> things you can look back and there's a reason why things happen but i went into uh, uh i don't know if we still call it that telemarketing <laughs> yeah uh, and actually was um together i, I just did a normal phoning uh, being a phoner and doing that uh, hard uh, job learned a lot about people and how to um, use psychology in conversation so it's actually quite interesting from that point but it's it led to starting actually the first telemarketing department in the banking business oh. so me and two others we were recruited or headhunted to the, the one of the, the biggest bank at that time in denmark to start that department within it was not allowed at that time because of the, some legal stuff so it was a super nice way of being a pioneer um, really changing an old industry of the banking industry and being much more outgoing and trying to to connect with customers in a new way it was super interesting and i was in the beginning of the 20s or something so it was quite again i was super lucky to have someone trusting me and myself daring so that was super nice uh, but we are really back in in the 20s now but um it paves the way for the future i think i can imagine because telemarketing is not easy so no to gain some trust get people to listen and not hang up within the first few seconds is challenging and i imagine you learn a lot about yourself that you're resilient you can handle rejection you find ways to connect with people very quickly and organically you remind me actually of sarah blakely who's one of the female leaders i i really really respect she is a self-made billionaire she started a women's um undergarment company called Spanx. And she said the best training she had to prepare herself to be a CEO of this multi-billion dollar company was that she sold fax machines door to door for seven years. That I can imagine is a similar thing where you're getting constant rejection. It's really hard work, but you're driven. And I think she too is really, really good with people and learned that that was the part of the mm -hmm. job rewarding for her while she was planning for her next venture. Um, so tell a telemarketing within banking is yeah. also the most creative thing, but it sounds like you took a creative approach to how you were going to be successful in that type of a role, which I find fascinating. You created an opportunity for yourself where other people might've only seen like very siloed opportunities. How did you, it, was it that first role that made you think about your potential impact in a different way in this second role? Yeah, I don't know if I was conscious about it at that time, actually. I was more, I think I was, I also follow, I have never had a career plan and I have done quite amazing stuff without, I would say. So yeah. it's not a giving that you need to have a plan and I didn't either. So I'm following what comes and what makes me fun and where it somehow resonates with, with me. And of course, over the, year, over the years, as you grow and learn, all new things resonate with you. But at least at that time that resonated with me as, something very learningful and insightful uh, work in that sense. And then I could also see in that, that it, it could lead me to this advertising agency, which it did, which it did. So uh, because this bank actually had an in-house uh, advertising agency of 50 people. So very soon I managed to get into that, <laughs> and which was my plan. So, so, but I had to take this step, which was actually much better than I thought as a step towards the real thing. So that was also interesting to learn. 
to innovate within this bank um, and to get into the marketing side of it and that kind of pique your curiosity, which I find so fascinating because it's not connected to what you had studied, your first role. In your second role, you're really reinventing yourself over and over again in this early stage of your career, which I think is such a pattern I see over and over again with highly successful people is they've worn a lot of hats. They've learned lots of different parts of how companies work and um, can appreciate that now as a leader at a major global organization. I can imagine you're drawing from these experiences. Definitely. And also that time, it, it was also, I was still also part of the system, uh, you can say, the norms. So I, I did study in the evening beside that, uh, because in Denmark you have this diploma or it's a bachelor and a call for business economics. So I thought oh, I better do that now. I can feel I will not go back to the university. So now I'm here stuck in, in work life, which I enjoy. I'm a doer in that sense. But then I took these, uh, this um, business uh, administration, business economy uh, bachelor in the evenings, which super hard on top of a full-time job. But I have to say, I never really used that. <laughs> but I did it because I felt mm, it's a super weird thing. Today, with my knowledge, I would probably not have chosen to do that. But yeah. I relate to that because we feel like we need these certifications. Like someone else said that I am smart <laughs> and I learned some things. And it's something on my resume that is just validating. But I agree. Looking, I had a period in my career where I considered like leaving and going to an MBA. And thankfully, I worked for a very wise CEO who said, you don't need to do that. You, you have the job that those MBAs hope to have when they graduate. But I, I think it piqued my curiosity as well because I thought I needed that external validation. But what you did was you were having an impact in the day-to-day -day and you really saw in, in the end, that's what was most valuable. Mm -hmm. So how did you go from this uh, marketing team within a bank into eventually now being a global business leader at IKEA? What were the steps that prepared you for this major international role? Yeah, I think I have had some uh, some years in retail, like 25 years now in retail and IKEA, which is where I have my global role now, is in, uh, in retail. But I have, so so since this youth, I, I have had a couple of uh, positions as CEO. Um, so knowing general business, you can say leading a, yeah, a company, uh, understanding PLs, but also all the other mechanisms. So having these uh, CEO positions and director positions, it's super interesting because that sounds like big, it is big jobs, of yes, but it seems like um, strange strengths then to, to be in this global position in IKEA, not being <laughs> the CEO, <laughs> uh, but it's so different. And it's, it's the biggest and hardest and most complex job I have ever had in my life. So somehow it all makes sense now again, that uh, the more complexity you add, the, the harder, of course, it, it gets. And it is so clear that I sometimes reflect back on the CEO role as very easy, uh, which would normally not be probably what you would say. And it's not to be arrogant or anything. It's just like, yeah, it's about leading. If, if you're a good leader, then, then you can really uh, do a lot. But when you're in a, when you are suddenly in this global role, as I am now, moving a big tanker globally to a total new, new, um, you have to play with all you have learned during the years. I mean, this is really tough uh, and hardcore because it's really challenging and you have to think so differently than traditional business. So um, I'm glad uh, it came that late in my career, you could say, otherwise it would have been overwhelming. Yeah. Um, so it's um, interesting. I reflect often that, ah, CEO, that was easy. Going to board and I, of course I, yeah. So yeah, it's just interesting. Yeah. I'm fascinating. I, I love how you have pointed out a few times something that I believe in firmly, that it is only in retrospect that all the dots of our career mm. and we can see how we learned things line upon line and one opportunity prepared us for the next and how we slowly move our way forward. And it's fascinating. I can appreciate what you're saying and maybe being a CEO of some uh, smaller organization. Yeah, smaller, yes. <laughs> things that are as large as IKEA. So having been CEO and been a leader in different environments prepared you for the complexity yes. of, of the current role. So I wonder if you can describe for us a little bit of 
what does it mean to be a global business leader at IKEA and what mm -hmm. is day to day like? What are your responsibilities and how are you motivating and managing your team through this complexity? I'm leading a transformation to something new that IKEA haven't necessarily done before. So it's a lot about changing mindset. So it's a lot about the internal uh, stakeholder management and stakeholder uh, nurturing or nudging or whatever, uh, both maybe, and uh, really trying to um, yeah, to navigate that big changes always causes fear. Um, uh, not that people normally are, uh, feeling threatened or anything but it's always challenging with big changes so, so a lot of my work is around that um, understanding that that's the psychology that happens in the organization and thereby the reaction so really understand and try to navigate that and then it's it's um so it's about change management and um, and so on and then it's um then it's being on the on the forefront and then on top of what's happening in the world Mm. really being also understanding what's happening in uh, outside of the world and in, in bigger ecosystems uh, and really understand global movements um, to understand this transformation, which is going from a linear to a circular economy for the future of IKEA, which means that business models has to change. And that is big when you are such a big company. And then uh, to navigate it in the daily, uh, which is uh, that I'm leading an innovation team uh, where we work, we have to work agile and we are constantly in the unknown. So we only know when we learn <laughs> a new yeah. thing. So it's not like, I mean, and that is the challenging thing that from traditional leadership, from a CEO position or whatever uh, uh, leadership member or something, this is really, um, you, you only learn when you test and you get some learnings and from that you can take a new decision. So you should dare to trust the process, first of all. So I have an agile team, or we, I, I work with the team as in an agile way, where we have three-week sprints, uh, where I um, set goals and expectations from the upcoming three years and priorities, uh, not three years, uh, three weeks and priorities. And then the team is self-managing. Then they plan together in four or five hours, okay, based on these priorities for the next three weeks, this is stories and epics that we should do. They actually put it in a system, it's super structured. So to be innovative, you have to be super structured. <laughs> it's so uh, unlogical, but that is how it is. And then uh, they meet twice a week in stand-ups in mornings just to check in with each other and so on. And then after three weeks, they are delivering and I am invited to a demonstration or demo for that. And also a lot of other stakeholders to keep them on, uh, up to date with what we are doing. And then they demo all the fantastic work. And then in the same afternoon, they do the planning for the next three weeks. So we work very uh, agile and uh, iterative. But what is the main interesting thing about this way of working, which I have learned, which is super important, is that it gives an opportunity to people really, for people really to blossom and unleash what they're good at because it's a task it's not the role mm. so in the next three weeks we have to do xyz some are big uh, holistic uh, fluffy things and some are very concrete test test a furniture with the scratch how could we paint it and thereby give it a new life or something so it, it can be anything and then you between the teams saying who has the energy for this for these three weeks, who has the time? Who has, uh, yeah, who wants to learn? So, so I also use it as a way of upskilling, and I mean that people can learn new things all the time. Okay, you just so, so much wisdom in just a few minutes. There's so much I want to unpack. One, I love that your sprint cycles are three weeks. Like I thought in coming from technology companies, our sprint cycles were fast. That's much faster than ours. So I'm very interested how that works. Second, that you use it, you don't just pin people for particular types of tasks. You say who's got the energy, the bandwidth, and who wants to learn something new yeah. in the way that you utilize your talent. I want to go back to what sustainability means for you, because if you're doing these quick iterative cycles, 
And I've also never run something in a company where you physically, you have physical things you're producing. So I'm curious how you do that in short sprint cycles. And then going back to maybe unpacking the linear versus circular mm-hmm. plans that you do. So you gave us so much right there. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so maybe we start with the sprints. Like how do you do, have you always done it in three week cycles? And is that in a way because so that you can take this the ship that is now really big and slow to turn is this how you make sure you're continuing to make progress in this new direction towards sustainability and production yeah yeah actually it is why it's it's the sustainability movement and the circular movement and transformation we are into here is very long term basically so uh, so to get something tangible and um also you can say eating our own medicine in the, so on top of that is we have the sprinkling then it's also innovation methodologies that it's also about iteratively learning and constantly learn something so so to be sharp on sometimes you learn a lot in a in a in a, in a short period that leads to an next decision to make to a next decision but but it's very small things actually that we deliver but it delivers to some bigger picture and to keep the big picture uh, in mind and still focus on delivering so it doesn't become this long term that then it would be too fluffy I, I, I think because and in, in and in general sustainability is still fluffy for many to to uh, digest uh, I come from business myself I mean so it is super, I was, it was super hard for me as well that yeah one day we will be <laughs> you know when you're in the business and definitely in retail it's like sales figures every day right so to balance that in an organization also where where we are more have more pace we learned that three weeks was the best so we have tried longer and shorter and learned so so we ended up in three weeks with uh, as um, the optimum so we review every third week we also have a retro so we go back so what did we learn this three week what could we have done better what should we keep what should we improve what should we kill so we have this constant evaluation. So we are, so yeah, the, yeah, it's it, it's it's very um, present. You can say we are so aligned with the existing because it's actually only three weeks. That might be beneficial for us, but maybe not for others. I, I don't know. I'm really smiling because it's so it's a similar environment to where I come from, from Google and Amazon in ways I did not expect. I feel like I would be very at home on your team because I love your leadership style that you are so human centered in the way that you innovate. You're thinking about the talents of your people. It sounds like you have very honest conversations. You're very safe to experiment. People wouldn't be afraid to present to you something that they're recommending to kill because it didn't go the way they thought. How do you create that psychological safety on your team? And how do you choose the people that you want to be close to you on this team? How do you do? Because this sounds like a real brain trust that you've assembled here to allow you to have that kind of innovative process. Maybe you can describe for me the culture that you created, mm-hmm. people you've hired. It's definitely about uh, being a good example. That's the easiest way because if you show, um, so, so I think that's maybe what I have done. Uh, so I will come back to the recruitment, uh, but it's so I often, not often, but sometimes I also say I have no clue about this. We are really in and I don't know. But could we try uh, for the next three weeks to test if if this is the way? And you find out the way. By the way, I don't even come with a solution or suggestion. I just say I, I can't help you. I, I don't know. And then, you know, sometimes when you are boxed or creativity comes and then it's, 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 yeah. And then people start to come up with ideas and find a way. And I tip in sometimes and sometimes I don't even tip in. And then, so it's, it's about, for me, it's about creating a environment. That's at least what I'm doing in an environment where you feel as, as we also want to, that it's also okay to fail. And we also celebrate failures sometimes, right? We forget it. We, we actually spoke about it yesterday. Oh, we have to have a session now where we should put all the failures on a big board and then uh, celebrate that, yes, this failed, this failed, this failed. So so uh, somehow we are not as good at it. But it's not like it's not in, 
not allowed or anything. It's just that we should all, we celebrate a lot of our successes, but we should also celebrate the failures. That's just what I'm saying. So. At X, which is the moonshot factory at Google, Astro Teller, who leads that team, he's most often on rollerblades because he just, walking is not fast enough. So he's zooming around the office on his rollerblades and he has this little air horn that when someone has learned something through failure, like something didn't work and then they've shared, okay, here's what I think is the core principle here. He literally blasts the air horn to get everyone's attention and says, look what we've learned. So that's like a very out there way of celebrating failures. But I like that what you're doing, we call them post-mortem reports, which is very, you know, morbid, but doing that of analyzing what went wrong, what have we learned from this and how can that inform better decision-making or a better iteration on this going forward? That for me is the key element across all highly successful, impactful companies that continue to increase their relevance in the world today is, is not only looking at the successes, but encouraging your employees to come to you when something didn't work and share broadly the learnings that came from that. So I, I think having a wall of, of failures or learnings is a great idea. I, I would love to see a photo of that. <laughs> we should do that now. It's a little difficult. We're still working from home, so we do it in a, in Meyer boards, but uh, still, uh, yeah, it's a board. Hi there. I just wanted to take a quick break from this fascinating conversation to invite you to buy my book, Bet on Yourself. It's available wherever you like to buy books. In Bet on Yourself, I'll take you on a deep dive into the best practices I collected by watching the exceptional careers of my CEO mentors, including Jeff Bezos, Marissa Meyer, and Eric Schmidt. I also share stories of what it was like to work at Amazon and Google during the foundational years of those companies and the internet. I use my own career as a case study for how to translate the habits of these super performers into any career at any stage and within any industry. I also attempt to answer the question of why all three of these celebrity CEOs chose to partner with me in order to fulfill their most ambitious goals and how I am now going to do the same for you. While these stories are fun and fascinating, what I hope for most is that you will walk away not only inspired, but with a playbook for how you can take action, recover from setbacks, and create your own wild adventures and joy-filled success stories and a work life centered around your personal mission and values. Okay, let's get back to the podcast interview and more examples of how taking even seemingly small bets on yourself can lead to extraordinary results. Well, I'm curious about that. That was the next section I wanted to ask you about is leading globally. You've mentioned that this is a big challenge and I can imagine it's only more so in this working from home environment. How do you maintain this connection with your team? Because it seems like, you have such a human forward focus on, on your leadership style and the way you entrusted them. How have you preserved that or enriched that while you're away from each other? Yeah, we do many things together and we, I do something individually with people. So it's a mix, I would say. I have increased uh, my formal one-to-ones with team members. Uh, whereas before, actually, you met uh, at the corridor or in a meeting room or, or somewhere. Um, but today, I'm actually quite structured around it to secure that we were uh, meeting each other individually, one-to-one. So, so that I, I, I do. And then we have, as a team, we have set up some things and some rules. But we have set up that we have to have a chit-chat once a week where we there's no agenda where we just how do we feel and what did you do this something done anything funny or something so so like this social thing that you formalize it's not the same but it's better than nothing at least and then we have the, the game together we have a gaming session every friday oh really where we have a hammer where it goes on tour or you can say it shifts between the team members to organize and then we have a game together which is virtually of course uh, but super fun uh, so, what types of games can you play remotely with each other? What has been one of your favorites? Uh, we have this, um, what do you call it, a scavenger hunt. So yeah. it could be a physical one where we say we go outside, uh, find a red car, take a picture and post it in the chat. And then we vote for the best picture. Or I mean, And then we have 10 of these things that we should upload. Maybe it could be, um, I don't know the English word, when you draw and you have to get yeah, you have to guess what the, what you're drawing. You, you can do that virtually as well, like Pictionary or whatever. It's yeah, 
we have, I mean, we have quizzes and um, yeah. And then I have, then I have also encouraged everyone to walk as much as possible. So we have, I have myself around 40% of my meetings is while walking now. Oh, wow. Walking from home. Yeah. So we have found a way that it's somehow that it's okay. I also had a full team day yesterday, 8.30 to 5 o'clock summer team meeting goodbye have a nice summer and full day together packed agenda i always also start saying if everyone wants to walk while we're having this meeting please do so there's only one session where i would like us to be in front of the screen and then otherwise feel free to walk and then uh, so so but my all my one-to-ones uh, is always walking uh, so we so we have just created some new ways of working in this period um and explore new tools. Yeah, we are doing a lot of things, and I, I sent them gifts then instead by mailbox, and, and there's also something in receiving something at home with some. I, I actually for this meeting yesterday bought them three books, plus a business model shift, uh, something about the future scenarios, and then an internal book we have made in IKEA, and then a Lego package. Oh, very fun! So we should do a prepare Lego setup with a story. And then um, we showed it for each other with some stories and all that. So, so things like that, that is somehow, I mean. I think that is a, if um, startup CEOs don't tune in for any other part, I think you have just given them such a roadmap for creativity, for connection, for psychological safety, for people feeling uh, being seen and heard. Uh, at Google, we had this very playful campus like feeling with like um, a gym and beautiful gardens and places to walk or play volleyball or play video games. Because what we actually discovered, uh, there's all kinds of like scientific studies to back it up, is that when you get out of your desk and you're in a new environment, especially if you're in motion, if you're walking or you're playing a game that requires like connection that uses both sides of your brain, you get these new ideas come out of nowhere. And that's where innovation actually happens. But it doesn't happen unless you have this cross-functional brain activity happening. So what you're doing is actually giving them permission to get up and see that that's even more valuable than the traditional, like, I'm on my computer for 12 hours straight and I'm not, and and, th and you're giving them a break from the Zoom fatigue, just getting up and doing a walk and talk, getting some sunshine, the vitamin D, especially now this gorgeous summer weather in Scandinavia, must <laughs> but to soak it up while you can. Um, I think there's so much wisdom into that. And you've invested in their mind. You're, you're investing in their knowledge, sharing these books that you can all discuss together that might inspire some new ideas. I, I can imagine a long tail of benefits that comes from just those few tips that you've shared just from this week. Yeah, it was super nice also with one of the books I asked two in the team if they could come with a summary and a somehow a teaser so they prepared a fantastic like something from one of the books and saying this is what you could expect in this book and they and the team already said oh we could use this uh, there were some solutions or some methods in there and now hopefully people feel more inspired to read it during the summer that could be super nice so so it's also about engaging uh, the team into such a thing and not just hand over a book but really do something about it so it's also these small extra things i think it's important i agree it's a lot of times it's the little details when you're when you feel really seen and invested in by your manager you get so much more out of people they feel incentivized that you see them you see what they want to grow into the skills they're trying to develop and then creating opportunities to exercise that going forward is a nice naturally self-propelling cycle of up-leveling the skill and the creativity that you get out of your team. I'm curious, do you think that this is uniquely Scandinavian, this kind of approach to work? You've, um, in a recent article, you said our Scandinavian DNA makes us better equipped to succeed. As a fellow Scandinavian, I'm proudly um, three-quarter Swedish one quarter Swiss. So um, what is it uniquely about the Scandinavian DNA that, that you were referencing there in that article? I have this idea, and sometimes you might be wrong because you don't know the whole world, but at least uh, to my knowledge, I think we have something special in, in Scandinavia that relates to this. And that is um, this that we are all constantly on the move and, and the things can be improved and okay, then that's done. Then we don't sleep. Then we more can be done, more can be done. And 
I think it's a very um, yeah, Scandinavian thing, uh, which is giving us the opportunity to uh, to really be in the forefront and and and, and yeah, and being constantly on the move. And in IKEA, for instance, our founder Ingvar Kamrad, he did uh, um, you can say he has created something called the furniture dealer, the testament of a furniture dealer, which is a collection of all our values that are truly what we live still and it's 75 years old or something <laughs> um or oh, he made them in the 70s yeah anyways it, it's old uh and one of the thing is that we we say often internally still uh, as and he said uh, from the beginning most things remains to be done glorious future oh wow we always have to, we often have that on a back page or at the end of a presentation i mean i used it myself last week it's just like and it, it it's it's IKEA in the camera our founder but for me it's it's a Scandinavian thing it, it's it's so so therefore of course it's also in IKEA which is Swedish so so I think there's something about that DNA that we are constantly and then we are also having a lot of prerequisites mm. we have very little corruption in the Scandinavian countries we have a lot high level of trust we have um society uh, that is uh, really uh supported and we have pay a lot of tax but we also have a i mean a, a good foundation mm. and i also think that helps us unconsciously to be to i mean even you shouldn't if, if it's not should not be us who had the extra power to think a little out of ourselves and, and and think uh, about bigger things than your own narrow mind then I don't know. I mean, we have all the prerequisites, I think, from a society that is also supporting this kind of thinking, Yeah, I think. I agree. When I moved to Sweden, I was 20 years old. I, I lived in Stockholm for two years. And I think that's what struck me most was this community mindedness, mm -hmm. not thinking about decisions for your life in isolation. Um, it's in the Scandinavian culture, it stood out to me how much you're thinking about the other person and how that might affect the whole. And I found that really beautiful. One of my Norwegian friends told me a well-known saying there. Um, it says, there are people on the other side of the mountain too. When you're thinking about yourself in your village, your community, there's also people that are unseen that are going to be affected by these decisions. So thinking about the people on the other side of the mountain as you're creating a product or putting something out into the world, thinking about the ripple effect of that. I thought was a very beautiful concept. Oh, I really liked that one. That was really a nice way of saying it. Uh, oh, yeah. Norwegian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that's something really beautiful. And it, it probably, it's mm -hmm. interesting because I, I didn't know about that mission statement, but it makes so much sense to me. The reason why IKEA can continue to remain very relevant and innovative and forward thinking is because you have a very solid core value and mission structure. And as you're talking about how you're constantly reminded of this, this tomorrow, that we're not done yet, that we're we're chasing something that's, that's greater. It reminds me of Amazon. Amazon has a very clear um, 14 leadership principles that they quote in pretty much every meeting. They are recited in helping decision making. When I started at Amazon, there were less than 1,000 employees. Now there's 1.3 million employees. Wow. 3 million. Can you imagine? <laughs> oh my God. The way continue to innovate and grow and they're not it's not a perfect company and they don't always think about the people on the other side of the mountain i think but the reason it can grow and stay very true to the core values is because it's reciting it's a part of the culture and jeff's equivalent jeff Bezos' equivalent of your mission statement is he says it is day one we're not going to act like we cannot be disrupted we're this giant behemoth we're not we're going to stop innovating because people have to use us now never he's um so that's the way he ends every single shareholders letter even now is it's still day one and i think that keeps you really oh, and innovating and not just thinking you have all the answers already. So fascinating. Uh, I'm really glad that you shared that because this is a common denominator, I think, in companies that remain serving yes. with their customers in mind and disruptive rather than reactive and becoming irrelevant. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're probably right. That's, that's very similar. Wow. Okay. So, um, I, wow, you didn't really expect to like relate to the IKEA culture so much. In fact, it's funny because it comes up um, 
in my work right now with uh, startup CEOs, we talk about the IKEA effect a lot. I don't know if you're familiar with this phrase. No. In startup culture, we call it the IKEA effect. When you give even more value to something that you've created with your own hands, step by step. So when you build it yourself, and maybe you didn't do it perfectly. In fact, my very first IKEA bedside table I assembled, I put the door on upside down and it opened the wrong way. Like <laughs> I did it wrong. And I was so proud of that because I made it myself. It was like, you know, moved into university. I was 18 years old. I built it myself. I was very proud of it. And even though it wasn't perfect because I made mistakes, I was super proud of that table that I assembled wrong. Um, so I think there's something interesting about the IKEA effect for entrepreneurs that you value these early stages when things are messy, but you made it yourself rather than someone giving it to you. Yeah. Um, so it makes that uh, that has even more meaning for me now, understanding your creative process and the values built into your company culture. I think when we when also the flat pack was launched, that was also our founding McCamera's idea how to keep the prices low so we yeah. could serve as many people as possible. So that is still, you know, to create a better everyday life for the many people. And then when the flat pack came, as a, it was quite disruptive. At that time, you couldn't buy a furniture that was not assembled. So this was the first time to have this as furniture not being assembled, right? Flat pack. But it was also with the story of we do our part, you do your part. Yeah. That has always been the sentence connected to that, you can say. So mm -hmm. we have lowered the price by we don't have to store it, big furniture assembled, but flat packed so we can have more and have a more efficient supply chain and volumes and so on. Because we, But you do your part. You assemble it yourself. That means that we can sell you this fantastic furniture at a price for more people, but you do it. So it's, yeah, it's super interesting um, how that, so, so, yeah, and there is something about when you survive that's <laughs> the same thing, a big thing, right? You feel, wow. And <laughs> when I got engaged to my husband, he's Spanish, which is why I'm in Spain now. Um, we were, we remodeled our apartment and we were choosing some new furniture and we got, we wanted a nice Ikea set for our terrace. And so my, all of my uh, sisters were like, oh boy, this is the real test of a relationship. You yeah. Yeah, and then you assemble it together. You learn a lot about each other in that process, and like it went very, very well. So they were all like, "Okay, you'll be fine." <laughs> you tackle problems. How you come together as a team to to build something and mm -hmm. terrace furniture is beautiful. <laughs> but in the last part of our conversation, something I want to touch on is how you're continuing to evolve yourself as a leader. So you're on several boards of directors, and I'm curious, for me, that's a new experience. I'm on two um, boards in the UK and one in the US, mm -hmm. and it didn't come about in the way I expected. It sounded so formal and something you do at the end of your career, and, and I've learned so much by sitting at those tables. Can you tell me about the, um, the lessons that you've learned in your own experiences as CEO and running major organizations? I've never had the situation where I have only focused on my work i work so many hours so i'm so devoted and uh, very passionate about my work but i have always felt as a person that i needed to have other interests so, so uh, i'm really uh, I'm, with that i'm trying to say so, so i also i'm curious about other industries and i'm curious about maybe in this case it was smaller startups and i'm super interested personally in architecture and design so my path was to you, it, it, I think it came by coincidence, my first advisory board position, but it was it was connected to a design company designing uh, lamps. And I had actually been in IKEA. I had, we never spoke about that, but 25 years ago, I was also in IKEA and then I left and now I'm back. Yeah. Um, so, so I have always had a passion for furniture. So someone knew that and then said, yeah, maybe you have done some great stuff and maybe you could help these young, this young startup uh, um, so, so that's how it started. So that was a network thing. Um, but then I think it's, um, and then when you, then I must say, at least in Denmark, uh, to get a board position, uh, it's super hard if you haven't been CEO. I think there's still a, I don't know if you say that in English, a glass ceiling, what do you call it? Glass ceiling. Yeah, glass ceiling. Uh, and that is still part of the, um, 
atmosphere here, this very um, old school still. So you can say my, um, yeah, that has been my fortune then that I have been CEO. So I have been through, I know my PNL and all that. So that has helped me in a more professional, more serious board positions now. But the fun thing is with startups. I mean, everything is chaos and uh, they're so passionate about probably it's normally a product or something, right? And then, um, yeah. So for me, the journey has been by coincidence, by also saying, yes, I would love to, and just taking the chance of, I've never been in the advisory board. Let me try and then trying and then take a new one, a new one and a new one. And then, yeah, and now I'm in two professional boards uh, and that was done by headhunters. So they contacted me. So, so it has also changed, but I think the recipe for others, it is a mix. You should be curious, dare to say yes, and maybe start small. I mean, it's also to be humble about it is maybe uh, something that grow and maybe it's also boring and, and it's not something for you. So then rather start small and then learn that, yeah, maybe that was not me because it's, I mean, it's also hard work in every country that is some kind of um, network either for female uh, board members or wanting to be and other networks for board uh, discussion. So, so it's also to be close to that and then pitch yourself there if you want. I mean, and then headhunters talk to them directly if you want to be super proactive yourself. So I, I think it's a mix. I agree. You pointed it out that it's, I think people think it's very linear. Like you go from a junior employee, then you get some, you get a manager team and then you become a VP and then a CEO. And then you're on the board of directors that I don't know anyone whose path looked as linear as that. <laughs> For me, it was the same. It's very much about network, about the reputation you're building early in your career follows you. And those people pop back up in your life in these opportune times. I too have started my my board experience with smaller companies. I'm really excited to be on some companies that are now at a major stage of growth, but I started in, I agree, I think the chaos is the most fun. So those early years and um, helping them organize and, and anticipate what they're going to need going forward has been a fun way for me to offer some learnings from the big companies that I worked at while I'm learning what it means to be a board advisor and how to be more useful in that role. So I thought I found it mutually beneficial on both sides. And I think that's the most fun way of doing it. Mm -hmm. um, as we wrap up, I'm curious, I, I'll just ask you two last questions. Um, do you think about legacy now at this stage of your career, like how you want your byline of the summary of your career to be? Is that the way that you, a question you think about? Yeah, it's not, it's not how I work as such more. Mm -hmm. You could say more. <laughs> narcissistic than maybe for myself <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not so um, much thinking about what others or the business environment and, 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 and life we think I though think it's important for myself that my legacy would be something around integrity and that I am known for that uh, because it's super important for me that I have made a difference and I'm super privileged now to have a job with IKEA now that is really making a difference, not only for myself, my team, but for the world, because it's really, if we, if we succeed uh, with what I expect we do, then we have really made an impact because of the IKEA impact is so big. So I feel super privileged and, uh, and, and humble about that position. So that makes me super happy and that I'm happy about. I could think about, okay, at least I had these years where I was fighting and yeah, it was hard and we managed and we left this impact on the world because of, that would be fantastic. So, so of course it's not that I'm not interested in it. That is something, but it's more that I, that I, I can look in my, myself in the eyes and say during the way, even from um, completely young until now, uh, I had kindness with me. Yeah. That I was human on the way. That um, that also I was crazy and a little odd. It would <laughs> be okay to have that. Um, yeah, I think that's uh, that's something uh, maybe in, in that. And then I have just for myself. And I, I have to say I have an ambition in that sense. That in and that connects maybe to the, your question that I don't want to look back and say that the last 20 years of my active life was very similar to my first 30 or 40. 
So it's clearly that something needs to change and I don't know what it is. It's not now, now, but, but I want in that sense, my legacy that I have done something completely different uh, and that might then be the next, whatever I'm just saying, over the last 20 years actively, that is not as similar. I would feel that was not my personality. It's, it sounds too boring for me. Uh, and I really hope I dare. And I, I find suddenly the thing that makes it clear, this is what I'm supposed to do the last whatever years. Very excited to watch this space and see what you do. <laughs> Because I am sure it's going to be very interesting and unexpected. The way you've drawn out these um, lessons learned and how you've created opportunities for yourself across your career was not linear and made it even more exciting and and more fun and more you and unique. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I will definitely be watching. Um, And that's very similarly related to that. And maybe you have just answered that. My last question was going to be, what excites you about the future? What are you looking forward to the most next as we're coming out of our holes and entering into summer and post-pandemic opportunities? What excites you about the the next six months, year or so as we come out? I'm super excited about the things has changed. I believe in, in as a common thing, we have changed uh, bigger and, 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 and smaller extent, in bigger and smaller extent, some kind of mindset and attitude to the world. So, so I'm super excited about that it actually became such a, Bad, uh, bad, of course, but such a big pandemic that we have an opportunity as a society, total world society to have a new view on things. I think that is super exciting. Yeah. It must have changed things into a more, that we will be more uh, close to who we are and thereby more in sync with the world instead of pretending that we have, I mean, I have this imagination now, this Imagine that we have been doing the same thing in the same way, uh, overheard or not listened to all the signals of a world in another uh, stage, and we have not matched that. And we have somehow just continued. And uh, I think it's super sad. And I'm excited that potentially we have learned something that could make us more in sync of what is needed for the next generations and generations. And if not, I would be super disappointed. Uh, And then I really, maybe that's the new thing then to do. I don't know. (laughs) But then uh, I would be super disappointed. Um, And I'm not naive, so it would not be big changes, I know. But uh, I feel the movement from the young generation in many aspects. So I trust that. Yeah. I love that. I think this theme of integrity in your work, investing in the people around you, having faith in their ability to do hard things and and motivate them, give them opportunities to create the good we want to see in the world is really encouraging. Pia, thank you so much for this conversation. I definitely want to continue to follow your leadership and be inspired by you and your work and to watch your legacy of what you as a leader and what IKEA is working on next. Yeah, super nice for inviting me. Thank you for that. It was nice talking to you, Anne.